0: Usually on Mother's Days in the past, I've gone out of my way to make sure that the passage is about a woman. And uh, the good news is, today, just in the flow of the study of Luke's gospel, the passage is about a woman. That's the good news. Bad news is, she's a prostitute. But the good news is, she was a prostitute. And now she's actually a model for all of us to follow. All right? So um, here's what I'm going to do. I call this, um, instead of reading the passage, I'm going to do what I call a running commentary. So uh, the first half of the the message is going to be kind of going through the passages, 15 verses. And um, I'm going to explain it so we understand it. And then I want to apply it um, at the end, usually three points. Okay, so here it is, Luke 7.36 says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And remember from last week's passage, difference between John the Baptist and Jesus, John lived out in the desert, he ate bugs and honey. Jesus would be in the cities, and when invited to a party, he would go, and he would eat. so he's invited to a Pharisee party those are fun and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table now the ESV doesn't uh, reclined at the table the ESV uses this term reclined at the table Um, it's you you think of, of Jesus eating and we've got the last supper where he's in the middle and there's the 12 guys on one side of the table I don't think it was that way That was just for the picture. That was just for the the photographer, right? Um, But they didn't sit at upright chairs. They sat on the floor, low table, leaning on one another or on cushions, okay? So that's why he's reclining at table, all right? And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now that's a euphemism for a prostitute, okay? When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, a little background you need to know here. Um, a, a typical greeting back then um, involved three things. So you would go to the door, knock, 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 and you would be greeted by the servant, the slave of the house, and he would say, have a seat, and you would have been walking on dirty, dusty roads with sandals, so your feet are dirty. They're full of dust. So uh, he would undo your sandals, and he would wash your feet and dry them with a, to- a towel. That's the first thing. Then secondly, the... Uh, the Owner of the house would greet you with a kiss. All right, in some cultures that's still the greeting. Today it would be a a hug or a handshake. Um, You know, whatever the appropriate greeting is, back then it was a kiss. And then the third thing they would do is they would pour oil on your head. And we still do that when you come to our house, we just pour oil all over your head. A lot of people are insulted by that, but it's biblical. So, no. uh, so you know what that is? Um, the, the oil was perfume. And back then, they didn't have deodorant. And people kind of smelled. So this was a refresher. Today, we might say, hey, come on in. How you doing? Uh, can I take your coat? Would you like to freshen up? There's the bathroom. <laughs> There's some deodorant in there. <laughs> um, and then can I, can, I, can I get you a drink? That might be how you're greeted today. Back then was, hello, feet, kiss, oil, right? Pharisee doesn't do that. But this woman not only uh, washes his feet with her tears, she wipes the mud off with her hair, okay? Did we read that? Yeah, she... She, she washes the mud with her hair. She has, uh, she's kissing his feet, not his face, his feet. And this, this ointment that she pours on his feet. Now, this is, this is not Mary of Mary and Martha. But Mary in John 12 does something very similar. She has a, a jar of nard, uh, a perfumed oil, and it says it was worth a year's wages. So what do you make in a year? So this is the Chanel 5 stuff. And So, so in a, an act of devotion, she pours a year's wages on his feet. Okay. Um, so now what's the Pharisee do? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself... If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, not only is he looking down his crooked nose at her, he's sizing up Jesus as a lightweight. Certainly not a prophet of God, because... He would have known what type of woman this was, and he's letting her touch him. Unclean. By the way, you might be a legalist if your box of what makes you holy is so small that not even Jesus fits in it. So he's judging her, he's judging him, and when he says, Ooh, she's a sinner, what's the assumption? and I'm not right? so he's above these two this prostitute embarrassing woman and this man of God who's no prophet who doesn't even know what kind of woman she is and Jesus answering him is it interesting that he answers a question that is not asked because he knows what he's thinking Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Okay. So one guy owes uh, a year and a half wages. So let's say the average wage, let's say somebody, the average is $50,000 today. That's $75,000. So one guy owes $75,000, the the other guy, uh, it's two months wages, 7,000, okay? 75 and 7,000. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both, now which of them will love him more? The guy who was forgiven of a $75,000 debt or the guy who was forgiven the $7,000 debt? Which, who do you think would would it be? No, you don't need your calculators. Just <laughs> the guy with the bigger debt, right? Some of you, some of you are like, like oh, I got to carry the two here. All right. Simon answered. Now look at Simon's answer. Look at the Pharisee's answer. The one, I suppose. Okay, I'll play your little game. Rabbi teacher, all right, I know you're, you're trying to teach me something. Okay, I'll go along with it. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, and I'm sure the Pharisee is thinking sarcastically, well, thank you very much. Okay, But now Jesus is going to turn the tables on him. Okay, Verse 44, then turning... Toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your, ha- your house. You gave me no water from my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Why is he comparing and contrasting? Well, he's saying clearly her love for me, her respect for me, her regard for me is far greater than yours. You didn't even greet me with the normal customary greeting that you would give to the mailman, right? But look at her devotion now. How do you explain the difference? Now, in some pericopes, remember that word, um, stories about Jesus, the the point is not clearly spelled out. We have to do some real thinking. Here, Jesus spells it out for us, so there's no question what we're to get out of this. Verse uh, 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for... She loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What's the point? The more you're forgiven, the more you you love. The less you're forgiven, the less you love. Now, here's here's a question. Is Jesus, and and, and by the way, let's make sure we get the the order here. Um, Therefore, I tell you, her sins... Uh, which are many are forgiven and she knows they're forgiven. How do we know that she knows for she loved much? In other words, she's not earning forgiveness by her love. Her love is an expression of her knowledge of how much she has been forgiven. Okay? Now here's a question. Is Jesus really saying, that the prostitutes' sins were far greater than the Pharisees' sins? Well, not if you know what the rest of Scripture says about Pharisees. Jesus, in Matthew 23, calls them sons of hell, and he says you're like disgusting, whitewashed tombs. You're really pretty on the outside. But when we open you up and look on the inside, you know what's in there? Larvae and disgusting, rotting flesh. That's what Pharisees are like. Jesus sees the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and all of our self-righteousness as the worst possible sin. You know why? Why? It keeps us from turning to God to save us. Self-righteousness is appalling before God. It's arrogance before God because it's basically saying, hey, you know that whole cross thing, you die? I don't need that. I'm good on my own. So let let me kind of rephrase what's being said here. She who understands the reality of how much she's been forgiven, loves much. But he who is deluded about his sin, loves little. That's what's going on. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. So he, he verbally confirms what she already knows. Then to those who were at table with him, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Kind of reminds me of, remember, the the paralytic who is healed, he's let down, and Jesus says, instead of you're healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. Not only are they upset that he doesn't heal the guy, but they're like, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Mm-hmm. Same thing going on here. And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And, and again, she's not saved by her love. She, she's saved by Jesus. She's connected to him by faith. And that is expressed in her uh, lavish uh, treatment and expression of love for him. Okay? So, there, we've, we've talked through. The passage. Now, um, what are we to get out of this? I think here we have the key to loving Christ more. How can you, how can I be like her in our expression of love? Right? Now, the answer is counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what you would normally think. The answer is this. How do you you increase your love for the Lord? Allow yourself to perceive the true extent of your sin and how much you've been forgiven. See, the the human tendency is we come to church, we go to Bible study, we... uh, we want to be good Christians, so we're going to try to up our, our righteousness before God. You can do that by comparing yourself to others, by charting your growth on the growth chart, and you focus on how righteous and obedient you are. And what Jesus is saying here is, Sure, you want to grow in in your, your obedience and so forth, but let yourself experience and acknowledge the full extent of your sinfulness and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers and you will love him more. That's the opposite of bear down, try harder. It's admit, I'm a failure. and I receive your forgiveness. And that love then motivates you to worship him more. It's counterintuitive. So, um, practically then, the question is, how do we see our sin for what it is? And I'm going to suggest that, that you, throughout the upcoming week, by the way, Caleb mentioned a couple weeks ago um, to meditate on the Psalms. Any of you doing that. Raise your hand if you've cracked the Psalms open. Okay, very good. Turns out David wrote some of those. It's a joke. All right. Um, (laughs) So three things I'm going to encourage you this week to meditate on. All right. First of all, the cross. Okay. Um, I think, did we do, Todd, last week uh, during communion the, when I surveyed the Wondrous Cross? It was maybe the updated version or was it the Isaac Watts version? Uh, it's both, okay? So here's what um, Isaac... Watt's version says, when I surveyed the wondrous cross. Now, this word survey, today I think, I pictured the guy out on the road with the orange vest and the, the tripod and he's surveying, you know. So it's like a picture of a guy, me- you think of a, a guy measuring, the no, survey. Think of like if you take an intro class to geology, geology survey. That's maybe not a good one, because uh, you're... Doing the same thing, right? Um, survey means to ponder, to th- to think about the big picture. And and by the way, um, I I don't know that Protestants are encouraged to meditate on the cross. Like we, we can go well. That's a Catholic thing. You know, the, the stations of the cross and meditating on the, uh, on the wounds of Jesus. and uh, No, that's a Catholic thing. We don't do that. Well, yeah, yes, I want you to meditate on the cross. Survey the wondrous cross. Yes, the flogging and the crown of thorns and the nails and the agony and the thirst. And the mocking, and the "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" In fact, can I encourage you this week to just take a walk? Not with the earbuds in. Not with not calling. Everybody's calling. I when I go running, I I run into people who are are calling or text. They're texting. And I just kind of want to give him a nudge in the river. And, you know, I don't know. It's Lord, I'm a sinner. (laughs) This is not how how you're supposed to (laughs) meditate on the cross. You shouldn't be sinning while you're doing this, okay? But uh, focus on the cross, all right? Uh, So when I survey the wonder's cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. So here... You've got this contrast between a a bloody, naked man tortured on a cross. Oh, by the way, he's the prince of glory. He's your creator. He's the one on the cross. And when you think about that, my richest gain I count but loss. So here I think this is a reference to Philippians 3 where Paul says, my all my gain, all my righteous deeds, all my everything I did to earn favor before God, I it's loss. It's dung, Paul says. And I pour contempt, I hate my pride. So so reason backwards. Start with the cross, and you see the Prince of Glory dying on the cross. Why? He's paying my debt for my sin. He got what I deserve no matter how good I feel about my sin. God says that's what I deserve. So, so in, in all three of these, in essence what we're doing is we're saying this. We're not looking inward to see how bad our sin is. We're getting an outside opinion. Okay? We are horrible at self-diagnosis. Um, so I'm 50-something-ish. Okay, I'm, bef- I'm, between, I'm between 40 and 60, somewhere in there, okay? And... Um, For years, my wife has been telling me that I have sleep apnea or, you know, in the middle of night, you're gasping for air, okay? And I go, no, I don't, I don't, I can't, I've never noticed. And she's like, well, you're asleep. (laughs) And then I wake up in a panic and I go, quit kicking me. And so um, my self-analysis is that I am not a snorer, or I don't have sleep apnea. That's my self-diagnosis. So I had to go in for one of these tests that 50 and above above people go in for, okay? So they put me to sleep, and um, the good news is, that was fine, but the bad news is, the doctor runs in, the nurse runs in, they go, you have horrible sleep apnea. And you're coming out of this, like what? Was that what the test was? You know? Um, but an outside non-wife needed to tell me that I have something that I couldn't self-diagnose. The cross is an outside analysis of your true condition as a sinner, what you deserve. When you focus on the cross, you see his love, but you also see what you deserve. Meditate on the cross. All right, so the first thing you can do to see your real state before God is, is go for a walk and meditate on the cross. Maybe you want to read one of the Gospels before, or the, the, at least the, the crucifixion of Jesus before you go. Right? Um, second thing is to meditate on hell. And I know some of you are going, Pastor Brian's Mother Day sermons are awesome. <laughs> we got a prostitute, we got hell, we got, you know, the cross. Uh, Um, Why why hell? Well, every sinner will have their sin paid for in one of two places. Either on the cross, but those who, who don't turn to Christ, their sin will be paid for in hell. Now, um, you know what I've noticed when when preachers talk about hell? I guess we're supposed to get mad about <laughs> when you talk about hell. Get mad about hell, and that I don't think that helps. Um, and I, I think there's a degree to which we can be perceived as being excited about hell. Because there are those who are trying to take hell away from us, and we're like, "No, we're fighting for hell!" And almost like there's a, a, glee about hell. And and I don't, I don't. Hell is horrible. Could there be anything worse than hell? I mean, the greatest pain you've you've ever felt here on earth is nothing because it's eternal, right? Now. Every generation, there are those who want to, to question. And I think it's okay to say, is there really a hell? Are we reading this right? Um, because we want to make sure that we're being biblical. Okay, But throughout the, the course of church history, there's two uh, ways theologians try to question hell. One is they say, uh, well, m- maybe it's not eternal. There, maybe there's um, what you would call annihilationism. Annihilationism would say that there is a hell, but it's not eternal. You get burnt up and you go out of existence. You are annihilated. Okay. Um, another way is to talk about universalism, which would say that there is a hell, and the devil and his angels are there, and we deserve to go there, but through the cross of Christ, eventually everybody will be saved. Okay, and um, you remember Rob Bell's book was uh, kind of on, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know, you put a label on it and you get criticized for, you know, that's not what he believes. Well, uh, he, he would believe that eventually hell will be emptied. Okay. Um, and as I study it, I just, I, 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 don't, I don't see it. So I'm gonna give you some quotes from, from theologians. Here's one who says, I am not a universalist. I've never been a universalist. Someone quoted a theologian saying, I'm not a universalist, but maybe God is. You ever heard that? I'm not a universalist, but maybe God is. That's kind of a neat way of saying, okay, there's stuff in Scripture, which is a little puzzling about this, and we can't be absolutely sure all down the line, but it seems to me that the New Testament is very clear that there are people who do reject God and reject what would have been his best will for them, and God honors that decision. In in other words, yeah, I've heard the cute little saying that I'm not a a universalist, but maybe God is. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, But he's saying a little too easy, because how do you deal with eternal punishment? And we could look at each passage, but I'm going to keep quoting uh, theologians. Now, here's, here's another one. Christopher Morgan says, the church has believed, does believe, and always will believe in hell primarily because every New Testament author teaches the final punishment of the wicked. Some examples include Mark, Matthew, Luke, Paul, writer of Hebrews, Peter, Jude, John. In other words, every single New Testament writer speaks of eternal punishment. That's scripture. What about church history? Oh, by the way, R.A. Tory, Tory Gray Auditorium, named after him. Um, if you in any way abate the doctrine of hell, it will abate your zeal. Packer says this, but in itself universalism is a revisionist challenge to orthodoxy. Whether Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant Evangelical, for the church has officially rated universalism a heresy ever since the Second Council of Constantin- Constantinople 553, um, when the doctrine of apocastasis, the universal return of God and restoration of all souls that origin was understood to have taught was anathematized. So you've got every New Testament author, you've got um, every branch of Christendom accepting a hell. There's been little pockets of people who, who have always challenged it, which might be good because it forces us to study it again. Um, but, but here's what I would say. Rather than us saying, God, you're being too harsh... Maybe we need to let God's eternal sentence upon us inform us of how bad our sin is and how much we've been forgiven. Dwell on the cross. Dwell on eternal hell. Remember, the, the goal here is to love Christ more. Not to be morbid, but to realize what he's done for you. Then, last thing. Oh, by the way, this is uh, Sir Francis Newport, head of the English Infidel Club. So he had a club where they would gather, they were atheists, and they would mock Christians and eternal hell. And on his deathbed... He said, you need not tell me there is no hell, for I already feel my soul slipping into its fires. Wretches, wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. So there's a man who sees it as he's going there. All right? Happy Mother's Day. All right. <laughs> Dwell on the sin of pride. Jesus sees self righteousness as the worst of all possible sins. Why? Because it blinds you to the truth, it blinds you to seeing your need for a Savior. Self righteousness or pride is kind of like sleep. Sleep blinds me to my sleep apnea. Pride blinds me to my real state before God. Now, I'm, I'm studying uh, for teaching the book of Romans. Okay, So as I'm reading uh, stuff on, on Romans, I, I'm reading different views on how to interpret Romans and so forth. And there's a... Um, there's a trend today in biblical scholarship um, that challenges kind of the, the way Protestants have interpreted uh, the New Testament, okay? So so can I do a little theolo- theologizing with you? Are you with me? You okay, mothers? Let me ask the mothers. Can we do theology this morning? Okay, good. All right. Um, so... Um here's, here's the challenge. There's a, a group of, of scholars who are saying, since the time of Luther and the Reformation, we've misunderstood what the real problem was with Judaism. So when Luther and Calvin and those guys they were battling the Roman Catholic Church, which was teaching that you're saved by faith and works. So when Luther and Calvin read the Apostle Paul and read the New Testament, they said, oh, that's the, that's the issue, um, faith versus works. Individual faith and individual... Uh, uh, m- 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 My individual stand before God is the issue. So along come these scholars today, and they say, when we study other first century and and, uh, intertestamental writings, Judaism's sin was not individual pride. It was not individual self-righteousness. They were not self-righteous legalists. They understood grace. Really what the Apostle Paul is addressing was corporate national prejudice. In other words, Jews were becoming followers of Christ, but they still hated Gentiles. So they told the Gentiles, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to keep our food laws and you've got to keep our calendar to get in. So Paul's real issue is the sin of corporate pride. And the reformers kind of turned the issue into individual self-righteousness before God. It's it's not individual moral uh, self-righteousness, it's more corporate. Okay. So whether you follow that or not, I said, okay, let's let's try that out. And Here's, what I, I, well, here's where I'm at. There's a multitude of passages in the New Testament where individual self-righteousness is the issue. Just in, in Luke alone. So uh, in our passage today, what's the issue? A prostitute is being judged by a Pharisee. It's her moral sin that's being evaluated. And his self-righteousness is keeping him from personally, she's personally loving Jesus, and he's personally not loving Jesus. So here we have individual moral self-righteousness as the problem. Then, of course, you're all familiar with the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's going to tell the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray. Both are Jews, not one Jew, not one. Both are Jews. And what does the Pharisee pray? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, moral sin, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. So we've got uh, an individually, morally self-righteous person. Not a Jew-Gentile thing, not a corporate thing, but it's Two individuals in the temple, one judging the other over morality, the other presenting his morality, his self-righteousness before God to be justified. Okay. Then there's, uh, Jesus tells a story called the prodigal son. Why did he tell it? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And again, we have a Pharisee. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So we've got Pharisees judging the individual sins of sinners and tax collectors. So he tells the parable of the prodigal son. The, the son, two sons. First one individually goes off and squanders his life and drinks and carouses, he's a sinner, and he returns and is individually forgiven. But the older brother, who represents the Pharisees, older brother was angry. His father said, come on in, let's celebrate. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, so, uh, I think NIV says, slaved away for you, and I never disobeyed your command. He's presenting his individual perfect record of righteousness to his Father. He's individually, morally, self-righteous. There's the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and he doesn't list ceremonial commandments, like get circumcised. Or he, he Here's the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. How are you doing at keeping the moral commandments? Look at this self-righteous guy. All these I've kept from my youth. So as I read just through Luke, I see self-righteousness. Again and again and again, people presenting their personal righteousness, not their corporate prejudice, but their personal righteousness before God to be accepted. And the point is, it's a killer. It keeps you from personally repenting. Because you're deluding yourself about how righteous you are before God. Self-righteousness is the blinder that blinds us to our sin. It keeps us from seeing how God sees our sin. It keeps us from repenting. It keeps us from feeling the freedom that this woman in our passage today feels. And it keeps us from experiencing love for Jesus, the way she is expressing love. So, what enabled her to admit her sin? Now, we don't know what happened before, but probably something Jesus taught, probably his disposition communicated that God is safe to repent to. What enabled the prodigal son to return to the father, knowing that his father was safe to repent to what enabled the tax collector who went to the temple to repent of his sin his prayer is be merciful to me a sinner he perceived god as safe to repent to so as we close my my gift mothers and fathers is the key to loving Jesus more. Yeah, it's kind of messy on Mother's Day, but what is it? It's allowing yourself to admit your sin before God. What should you do to, to fan that flame? And I'm not talking about morbid introspection where you need to get depressed. Now look to the cross. Look at eternal hell. Look at pride. Dwell on those things and flee to a safe God who will forgive you and you will love him more and more and more. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this woman. Thank you that you opened her eyes and she um, saw her sin. And she received forgiveness, and then out of her flowed extravagant devotion to Jesus. So Lord, give us the courage to follow her lead, and may you be glorified as we survey the wondrous cross. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.